Another Thursday night, another date with me, Larry Luciato Crane, your host on the Logic and Larry podcast. Happy to be with you as I am every week. Everything I say on this podcast is strictly my opinion, does not reflect the opinion of any other person, any other entity. It is not legal advice. It's simply me speaking as a private citizen in a private capacity to you. And let's get it started off. This is not a live show, unfortunately, this week. I'm not going live, but I'm recording it on Thursday, only a little bit before airtime. This is just another one of those weeks where I needed some time off at night, get a good night's sleep. I got a long weekend ahead, a busy, busy weekend, and I need to just uh, recuperate. I've actually not been feeling too great lately. I've been battling some... Minor on and off nagging illness, which kind of swooped in just after allergy season, so it's been a little bit tough. Um, But I'm uh, recovering and getting back to form, and I couldn't leave you guys without another show this week. You've come to count on it. I know some of your routines. You send them to me. You listen Friday morning. You listen Thursday night. So I'm not going to deprive you of some legitimate logic, some legitimate news, and just some vibes on your normal weekly schedule. I got the jazz playing. This is John Coltrane. The John Coltrane Quartet, their album Coltrane, actually. One of his more smooth-type works, in my opinion. I really dig this album. And you know why I like jazz music? I was thinking about this. You know why I like just vibing and listening to it? It's because I think part of it is the artistry of it, the the free-form improvisation that's just really a musician in touch with himself and kind of lost in it and seeing where it goes. But the other aspect is just the timelessness of it, you know? The timelessness of jazz music kind of puts me in another zone, in another era, I don't have to be sitting in 2021 with all the technological things around me and all the present sense issues I have to face in my own mortality. I can be lost somewhere in the mid-20th century just vibing with timeless, timeless music. And I don't have to feel stuck in time. And it's somewhat comforting in an odd and abstract and philosophical way. And so I enjoy that aspect of it, and I enjoy just getting lost in it a lot of times, shutting the TV off, shutting everything off, and just vibing. And it was funny, because as I was thinking about that the other day, listening to this album, actually, thinking about the podcast and other things, I got to thinking about that movie, and not so much the movie itself and the content of it, but the title called No Country for Old Men. Excuse me, told you I'm going through something. But the title, No Country for Old Men, I thought about how how much sense that made, right? This really is no country for old men. It truly has never been, it never will be. And we recognize that more as we age, don't we? Now in my mid-30s, the latter part of my mid-30s, 36... I've noticed that the more I age, the more the world or the country around me becomes less accommodating to those of my generation. And I imagine that people for generations have been feeling that way in this country. As time moves forward and the new generations behind us develop new trends, new ways of thinking 
new philosophies. They, they literally transform the world around us into a place that we almost find to be unrecognizable. Sometimes unpalatable, sometimes unappetizing, sometimes off-putting. And we continue to see it evolve around us in ways we might not have chosen, in ways that make us feel uncomfortable, and sometimes ways that make us feel like we are starting to become irrelevant and our engagement in the world is having less of an impact. And our tastes and proclivities have no place in the new world. And maybe I'm being pessimistic. I don't know. It's cloudy and overcast today in Newark. There's a little bit of blue sky showing through, but it's misty over Manhattan. It's misty over the Prudential Center. And it's a little breezy. It's not as hot as it's been. I'm just not feeling that uplifted today. And I hate to let everybody down. Look, I'm always on this mission to spread logic and to join you. And I thank you for joining me. And I think we are doing good things here. And that's why I continue to come on and talk to you. But I do feel that sometimes, you know, it's hard to it's hard to keep fighting on. Uh, it's hard to keep fighting. The last few weeks, our listener base has actually gone down a little bit, which I'm imagining is just because the summer's kicked in, people are busy. And you never know. But it's gone down a little. Slight dip. I'm glad you're all here and I'm glad you're still the real people listening in and, uh, you know, participating because I, I know the show has gotten more based on actual news and a little less, less based on me just ranting about Trump. But, hey, you know, sometimes you just need real news and you just need to go with the flow. And if the news is a little bit lax, then you need to talk about what's going on. You need to delve into topics. And tonight we're going to delve into the XL pipeline closing. We're going to delve into this electric vehicle thing. It all ties into infrastructure. It all ties into into uh, environmental concerns, which is a lot of what's been on the news lately. But I'll touch on some other things first. And uh, to the point of no country for old men, too, by the way, you know, I think I've heard from a couple people, too, oh, you need to uh, go on video, you know, you need to be on YouTube and this and that. Listen, I have another show that's on YouTube that's a, a sports podcast. I have several spinoffs. Um, in the works that will be video-based podcasts. But the truth is, as I said, no country for old men. I like, I like broadcasting from audio with the jazz in the background. I like looking out the window of something that you can't see and describing it to you, right? There's a certain nostalgic and a certain um, artistic vibe to doing something that's fallen out of favor, which is just direct audio podcasts in the sense of it's more like a radio broadcast and I find there to be a benefit and a certain taste to that that I enjoy so it's not that I don't know that you know YouTube's all the rage and you you know maybe if you could look at my face doing absolutely nothing other than talking anyway maybe it would get more plays or whatever but I choose not to I choose not to. And maybe that's the reason, right? I've never really been able to brand myself in a narrow way. No matter what I was doing, whether it was music, whether it was this, whatever it was, right? I was, I've never been able to find a narrowly focused, one-dimensional way to market myself or to um, present myself so that I could generate more of a branding technique so that I could grow exponentially amongst the mindless masses. I've never been able to do that. And that's why I'm attracting you guys who are, you know, the select bunch of people who see through that nonsense as opposed to masses of people who are just drawn to mindless drivel. 
And I guess that is how it is. Anyway, no more of my self-deprecating, pessimistic nonsense tonight. Let's move on. And, and I, you know, I don't know why I'm going to tell you this, but I'm just going to tell you this. Before I got on here, I saw a local news story that a three-year-old boy in Elizabeth, New Jersey, fell from a balcony, second-story balcony in his house, had a neck injury when he hit the floor, and then when he hit the floor with the neck injury, two pit bulls mauled the young boy, ripped him to shreds, and he died. Why am I telling you that? I don't know. The only reason I'm telling you that, I guess, is because that's how I started off my day in this podcast, and I think it's to say that this world is sick. It's sick. It's always been, but we can do better in this country. And the fact that we're fighting over these absurd things that we're fighting over that we'll go into tonight is just... um, It's so absurd how trivial we can really be when there's real, real, real pain and real, real issues in the world. And every day people are suffering and being injured and there's horrible things in the world. And every day we overlook that. We get so invested in our own nonsensical, trivial lives and our own nonsensical, trivial political arguments. And instead of addressing what really needs to be addressed, we just get focused on nonsense. All that being said, look, I've been partaking in my own advice recently, as I have asked you guys to do, and I have been staying away from the algorithms as best I can. I've been staying away from cable news, and overall, you wouldn't know it from listening to me today, but overall... I am in a better place mentally with regard to the news. I'm not so bogged down in it. I'm not so cluttered with it. And I've had a decently nice week. And I hope all of you have had one as well. So, on to some news. Interesting COVID news. An article I read today. Homeowners in this country. Homeowners have gotten... Two trillion dollars richer in the aggregate. Anybody who owns a home has gotten, is a part of, not everybody individually, obviously, but everybody collectively who owns a home in this country has gotten two trillion dollars more rich over the course of the pandemic. That is due to skyrocketing home costs, and that is due to a high demand for housing outside of densely populated areas due to the pandemic. We'll see how that pans out now that people are going back to offices. We will see how that pans out once uh, home prices moderate, if they ever raise interest rates and it's a little tougher to get a mortgage at a good rate. We'll see if demand drops. They do say that there won't be any kind of bubble bursting the way that it had uh, in 2008 because uh, the mortgages that are underwritten have more stringent criteria, so people holding mortgages should be doing better. Um, Many people who were underwater, that number of underwater mortgage homeowners is way decreased because the values have gone up so much, and that's increased their equity in the homes. Um, so that's that's good news. Um, not if you're looking for a house, but if you have a house or you're looking to sell a house, it's very good news. If you're looking for a house, you might as well wait a while because uh, you got those prices have to come down. It's a, it's a seller's market, and it's it's brutal out there for those who don't know. Anybody in the market for housing or things, it's, it's pretty tough out there um speaking of that speaking of that in the new york city mayor's race i mentioned to you a few weeks ago about eric adams who i thought was kind of rounding the corner as the leader in the the new york democratic primary uh because of the crime issues and because maybe this far left more approach is not is is kind of not resonating as much anymore with actual new yorkers on the on the ground who have to deal with uh, the issues there including rising crime 
there was a controversy this week because I guess Andrew Yang a couple months ago had been accused of spending most of his time at a house upstate. And they were saying, you know, you don't really live in the city. And now this week at the 11th hour in the mayor's race, Eric Adams is being accused of residing primarily in New Jersey across the river in Fort Lee at his girlfriend's house, I guess. Um, but he said, no, 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 no. I live in Brooklyn. This is my apartment. He did a tour of the apartment. It kind of looks like maybe his son lives there. There's this big controversy. And it's so intriguing, right? Because we always have these controversies. I live in the city. A lot of people I know live in the suburbs. And it's interesting because there's a lot of accusations in Newark, too, when we have elections that some of the people running don't actually reside in Newark. They live right outside the border, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting because, it, you know, we've created these fictional fictional borders in the United States, right? And this is this feeds into our housing inequity. This feeds into our concentrated poverty. This feeds into this infrastructure package that they continue to debate about. And it's interesting because it's an artificial border, right? Like somebody may live in Fort Lee and spend all their time working in New York City or spend a lot of time in Fort Lee, but primarily live in New York, et cetera, et cetera. Is it, is it really a border? Like, he's crossing a river to look out at the same city, which he could be back at in a few minutes. We share news stations, newspapers, resources, energy, etc., etc., etc. It's like a fictional thing that we even care about it. It's interesting, because I want to see who wins that primary. But it's just overall intriguing and then we talk about this infrastructure package which by the way biden and capito who i had praised last week for their ongoing talks about uh infrastructure who had been trying desperately to come to uh some sort of bipartisan uh, resolution to the impasse those talks are officially broke down this week they are over with capito and and, and uh biden are no longer talking uh, in terms of trying to advance a bipartisan infrastructure package. Um, and, and primarily why those talks failed was Republicans were simply unwilling to increase new expenditures to a level that Biden was comfortable with. And uh, Republicans were simply unwilling in any way to talk about, even discuss, or even broach the possibility of raising taxes on corporations or wealthy Americans. And and why I find it so absurd, you know, is thinking about where people live in these artificial borders. You could drive down Route 80 or, you know, the New Jersey Turnpike or any of these large Route 78, these large highways in New Jersey. And you'll notice that they, they, they're vast, they're wide, they're deep. And they cut through vast swaths of the natural um, development that was the greater Newark area. And they spin around, and every city's like this across America. They spin you around all these ramps and underpasses and overpasses and little bridges and etc. And they spin you into the downtown part of the city. And then they spin around and spit you back out. And they spit you back out to the west, north, or south into the suburbs. I would say east, but east is New York. So it's not going, it's not getting any more suburban toward the east. Spit you back out to the suburbs. Well, a lot of people don't realize, they don't really reflect on it if they do realize, that those freeways were built 
by plowing over, just plowing through, knocking down vast swaths of neighborhoods, people's businesses, people's homes, public spaces. Those freeways across this country were built by plowing parts of cities to encourage and incentivize people to work downtown in the city, but to buy a car, which bolstered the auto industry, and then to buy houses that were government-backed outside the cities, which bolstered the housing industry and the energy industry and all these other things. Of course, to the exclusion of people of color, which has then created the problems we have today. But it's interesting because they also destroyed a lot of the cities and neighborhoods because you, you split a city. Like, you have a neighborhood like Orange, New Jersey, a big part of Orange, New Jersey, was plowed over. And it creates, you know, this this problem where there's no continuity in the neighborhood either. So a neighborhood that already might be struggling due to people moving to the suburbs, due to divestment, is now even more at a loss because they you cut across this vast highway which is noisy which is dirty which has trucks coming in and out all day to get to the other side where you used to walk through a couple blocks of houses or a park and why do i bring that up when i'm talking about infrastructure well i just find it interesting right that that people who initially the government incentivized roads and bridges and, and gasoline powered vehicles which destroyed parts of this country which have led to the problems including climate change including concentrated poverty including housing inequity all these things that then create these other problems which are police issues and all this other stuff and when it comes time to discuss how we're gonna rebuild the stuff they already built like the bridges and the roads and how they're going to pay for it and how they're going to revamp our infrastructure which is crumbling and which most economy uh Economists agree and business leaders and everybody else believes that our crumbling infrastructure is a problem, especially with regard to our competitiveness abroad. We can't have any compromise at all on raising a little bit of revenue from corporations. I, I know I've talked about this every week, but I don't understand it. It's been proven that most of the Trump tax cuts to corporations have been used for savings for companies, for stock buybacks, for compensation to the top executives, not for investment in research and development, not for investment in the community, not to go back to the government in the form of increased revenue, none of that. And I'm not saying bring them back and totally get rid of the Trump tax cuts, but why not raise it just a little bit, just a tiny bit? To pay for some of the initiatives that we agree need to be done. You had no problem plowing down people's cities. You had no problem incentivizing uh, vehicles to run, to pollute the air, to, to create jobs for auto workers. But now when it comes to creating jobs for renewable energy, alternative transportation sources, etc., you refuse to raise even a little bit of revenue from non-human entities that have done nothing to contribute. I just don't understand some of the impasses we find ourselves in. It's just confusing to me. It really, 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 really is when we're in these impasses. And, and while we're at that, not only have the talks collapsed with regard to Capito and Biden, but now the progressive caucus is coming out and saying, you know, they're not going to sign on to any infrastructure deal if it doesn't include robust elements 
directed specifically at climate change, right? They don't want to just rebuild infrastructure. They don't want to just invest in infrastructure, this one in a, once in a generation infrastructure package. They wanted to heavily address climate change. That's their primary agenda. And they're saying that if it doesn't address climate change enough, then they're not even going to vote for it. Now, whether that's a bluff or not, I don't know, but it seems unproductive to me. So you're willing to sacrifice any investment in our crumbling infrastructure on the one side because it doesn't go far enough for climate change, which is more of your... I'm not saying it's a pet ideology because climate change is a real threat and we're not taking it seriously enough, but it is kind of like you want to go so far on it that you're willing to forsake any improvement, any incremental progress on it. And on the other hand, you're willing to forsake all of it and to forego something we need because you won't raise a cent of corporate taxes who are these people somebody's child died this morning in elizabeth somebody else is breathing crappy air in some urbanized area somebody else could barely afford to live somewhere somebody else is losing their job somebody lost family members to the pandemic and these clowns can't spend a cent more from corporate tax and can't give up an inch on climate to get an infrastructure package passed. Who are these people? Who are they? Then you had AOC. She came out today saying, you know, the Koch brothers and McConnell are not good enough to forsake. No, no, she said the Koch brothers and McConnell are not worth burning, setting the world on fire for. AOC. What a quote. What does that mean? AOC. All she does is send, like, you know, it's a hot button liberal thing to say the Koch brothers, to say McConnell, and to say the earth is going to set on fire. What does that mean? There's no substance in that. AOC is an Instagram, TikTok politician. She just has sound bites. That's what they all have now. Sound bites, populist phrases, and no substance. It's just, it's, it's really devastating. But despite all that nonsense, and despite my bit of a pessimistic tone today, I'm really sorry about it, I really am. Can't help myself today. I don't know what it, I don't know what it is. But... There is a caucus in the United States House who I am a huge, 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 huge fan of. They are called the Problem Solvers Caucus. It's comprised of 29 Republicans and 29 Democrats. And this Problem Solvers Caucus has come up with their own plan. Now, if you don't know who the Problem Solvers Caucus, these are the people that I think are doing the job that I've been clamoring for somebody to be doing. And, and keep in mind, that's only 58 uh, Congress people out of 500 plus, 535, you know, 58 of them are the Problem Solvers. Everybody else, I guess, is just trying to get reelected. But they helped to salvage the last uh, stimulus, the last COVID relief bill that was uh, at risk of, of not making it. And they've introduced their own plan, uh, $1.25 trillion plan. Uh, $959 billion of that would be spent on traditional infrastructure investments. They would set aside $25 billion for electric vehicles and those types of things. They are right now trying to figure out how they are going to pay for it. Because if you can't raise even a cent of certain taxes, how are you going to pay for it? You can't just borrow your way out of it. That's not the way to do it. Uh, luckily, the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House has now advanced that plan, and there is a, another larger group in the Senate comprised of 
uh, senators from both parties who are working on a plan of their own and who have been speaking to the Problem Solvers Caucus in the House. Uh, so hopefully the latest uh, lifeline, I should say, or maybe the best path, path forward in a more optimistic choice of words is that this Problem Solvers Caucus in the House is going to work with uh, the senators and the White House in order to find a path forward and to still get this infrastructure bill passed. Because, guys, if, if they can't, this infrastructure thing has been a problem for the better part of 20 years plus. Since the turn of the century, 20 years plus, this has been a primary forefront issue and it's a basic, you know, non it should be non-ideological, you know, non-identity politic, should be non-identity politic issue. If they can't get this thing done in this term, then they just need to be tossed out on their asses, all of them. You have to friggin' figure this out. That's your job. You have a job to do. It's not just to sit around and point fingers and talk to your constituents all day about how great you are and the identity, politic, purely ideological sense. You have a job to do. Fix the infrastructure. Do it. So I'm rooting for this group. And I'm hoping that the stalwart, you know, ideologues on either side of the aisle don't thwart the process. But that's where we are. That's where we are now. I, I'm really hoping we get it passed. And more on that in a few. In other news, uh, President Biden and uh, Prime Minister Johnson in, in England have uh, indicated they are going to sign kind of an updated New Atlantic Charter. The Atlantic Charter was signed in 1941 by Winston Churchill and FDR. It just basically affirmed several initiatives that the United States and the United Kingdom were going to work on together. Uh, this one concentrates on cybersecurity, on recovering from the pandemic, on increased travel between England and the United States. It's important because it kicks off Biden's first trip abroad, which he is uh, embarking on this week. England, as we know, is in the process of separating from the European Union, which we can debate the merits of all day. But the fact is that it is important for us to reaffirm our relationship with England, uh, with the United Kingdom, and to tackle problems that they have over there. There is a Scottish liberation movement now. Uh, the Ireland, Northern Ireland issue has resurfaced, and obviously England has plenty of problems with regard to the European Union now that they're working on dissolving that relationship. So it's an interesting uh, update on our relationship with probably our closest ally. Uh, and later, as we discussed last week, Biden is going to uh, be meeting with Putin and other world leaders. He has the G7. Uh, he's going to meet with NATO leaders. And so... It's something to keep an eye on. It's his first international trip. It's going to be go a long way in kind of us seeing how he postures himself internationally. Um, Biden also indicated that the United States government was uh, entered into contract to purchase 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And 
we are going to donate those 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine to uh, developing countries, uh, primarily countries in Africa, uh, Asia, places like that. This comes as news that China uh, is dealing with another surge in, in COVID outbreaks from uh, separate strains, and several Chinese cities have entered lockdowns again, and that calls into question China's uh, administration of their own vaccines and the fact that it hasn't gone very well for them. And this opens up another thing that I'll touch on very briefly. You know, we, we always, there's a lot of criticism in this country, and a lot of it rightful, right? A lot of it valid, that we have a pharmaceutical industry that is for profit and that they are concerned primarily with profit and that we have this capitalist society which has gotten out of hand. And another criticism is that we are too global, right? We've been too willing to get involved in global affairs. And if you think about that, that spans both both parties now, right? There's always this, there's America first in the Bernie Sanders camp, which says we shouldn't intervene anywhere. And then there's that America first, which Trump proudly proclaims himself that we should, you know, take care of us before we go anywhere else. But let's just be, think about the truth here. We are a modern empire, whether you like that term or not, and whether you think that empire necessarily has to encompass abuses of power internationally. You can be an empire, in my opinion, in the true sense of the word, and not be committing atrocities or being overly imperialistic worldwide. But that, of course, would be naive of me to saying that there's absolutely no imperialistic element to the United States, even in in affairs of economies, etc., etc. Of course there is. But when we help other nations to combat COVID, which helps their economy, it in turn helps our economy. When we do that, it also stabilizes the world in a geopolitical sense because if the world or certain populations become destabilized by strife and collapse due to societal problems like rising COVID pandemics, uh, it destabilizes everybody, it destabilizes our interests, it destabilizes uh, our ability to live a peaceful existence. So we need to get involved. And the second part of that is talking about this vaccine. I meant to touch on it last week. We constantly criticize the capitalist structure of our healthcare system. And, and, and there's, of course, room for criticism. And, of course, we should be more equitable in the ways that we handle our medical system. However, did you ever think about maybe there's a reason why America is outpacing most of the globe as far as vaccinations? Our vaccine distribution, that that we've also developed the vaccines, that we are now purchasing 500 million doses of a vaccine from Pfizer and then distributing it worldwide, that part of the reason we were so quick to come up with a vaccine and we have the ingenuity and investment necessary to create vaccines is because of our system and because human incentives for profit drive human behavior. And perhaps the fact that it's lucrative for these companies to have come up with the vaccine, but more importantly, it has been lucrative for them in the past to develop the technologies that we needed to advance the vaccine was a key reason why we got the vaccine. And I only bring that up to say, just like with the infrastructure issues, etc., not everything we do has to be purely altruistic. There can be a profit incentive, right? There can be a what's in it for me, for lack of a better term, incentive to altruistic endeavors. And likewise, there can be an altruistic impact and an altruistic element to for-profit endeavors. And we've really lost sight in this country of the fact that the two go hand in hand. You can create 
commerce by extracting a certain extra bit of taxes from corporations in order to reinvest the money in infrastructure, which will in turn benefit the corporations that you're taxing, right? And at the same time you're doing that, you can clean up the air and you can clean up certain inequities that we have in certain areas that have suffered since we've disincentivized public transportation, since we've incentivized dirty fuel, et cetera, et cetera. We've lost sight of the fact that some sacrifice, some compromise, and some nuanced hybrid of for-profit incentive and altruistic endeavors can coexist. We've completely lost sight of that in this country, and it's just important to note and important to recognize. In other news... Uh, in New Jersey, anyway, the, there was a, a recent Republican primary for governor. And in that primary, I mean, ever since Trump has was gotten out of office, ever since Trump was out of office, there's been this raging debate, right? Is the United States, um, the Republican Party in the United States, should I say, is the Republican Party in the United States purely now the party of Trump? Or is it its own entity independent of Trump? And will Trump now be the standard bearer for the foreseeable future with regard to the Republican Party? Well, some say yes. You know, you got to go kiss the ring in Mar-a-Lago if you want his blessing to run for office. Some may say no, we can move past him. Well, I don't know that New Jersey is a very good barometer for that because New Jersey, you know, is, is way more liberal even on the Republican side than a lot of the rest of the country. But recently there was a primary, and in the primary, the Trump backers, one Singh, uh, Rizzo, they, they were Trump backers. They, their primary kind of uh, banner was that they were, you know, they had allegiance to Trump. They thought the election was rigged, yada, yada, yada. And then you had uh, Jack Chatterelli. Chatterelli was the, you know, old school Northeastern Republican. He's pro-business. He never liked Trump, called him a charlatan a few years ago. Um, and there was this debate, you know, who was going to win? It was kind of, you see it sometimes as an early barometer. You'd, you'd like to, anyway, if you're in the political science field nationally. You look at these gubernatorial races, these gubernatorial primaries as kind of early barometers of where the country's going, where the party's going. I don't know, again, that New Jersey's the best barometer. But any in any event, Chatterelli ran away with this thing. Uh, he won the primary, so the moderate non-Trumper won the primary in New Jersey. Um, I don't know if that means much because, again, it's New Jersey, but it was kind of a refutation of Donald Trump um, in the primary here. Some will say, well, if you add up the two pro-Trumpers, they actually beat Chatterelli, but that's not how it worked. That's not how it turned out, so you can't really go that way. Um, and it's worth noting. It is worth noting, though. It's worth noting that maybe more voters went overall for Trump but split their votes. Nonetheless, there's a moderate up for election in New Jersey in the governor's race. Governor Murphy's still in a pretty strong position, so you know it remains to be seen if really uh, he will beat Murphy. But nonetheless, it's just an interesting development. Now, on to kind of the final news of the day, which is kind of what I want to explore the most in depth today, is this um, issue regarding the XL pipeline. So the pipeline... And this has been, the Colonial Pipeline has been such a hot-button issue for, for years now. It's almost going on a decade, going on a decade, that the Colonial XL Pipeline has been at debate. They had This is where they had the protests 
which were intriguing because people were protesting, but then they were littering all over the land and stuff, too, while they were saying they're protesting for the land. It was just this is another example of humans going back and forth. But anyway, today, the company who was responsible for the pipeline officially announced, officially announced that the pipeline project was terminated. Terminated. It's done. It's over. So it was a major, 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 major victory for environmentalists, a major victory for opponents of the pipeline. Now, what was largely responsible for this was the Biden administration. The Biden administration uh, neglected to issue a certain permit for the pipeline, which effectively killed it. They're tired of fighting. They're done fighting. Now, Canada was upset about this. Certain advocates for it were upset about it, but environmentalists across the globe rejoiced. And it is officially a dead issue. Now, I wanted to just kind of explore, like, what was it about the pipeline that that was such a hot button issue, right? And, and, and I, I read a good amount about it. And it turns out that, I mean, if you don't already know, the pipeline was primarily designed to they are extracting tar sands in certain areas of Canada and it can be a it's kind of a new frontier of oil extraction it's a new frontier of fuel that we were able to finally um, finally find a way to refine and to utilize um, after many years of kind of not being able to uh, but it requires a substantial amount of energy to extract the oil from this tar sands and a lot of environmentalists number one were apprehensive about the fact that you know refining the oil from the tar sands was going to cause substantially more carbon dioxide emissions substantially more adverse climate effects than regular oil refining number one number two the pipeline was going to run through uh underground water sources, the aquifer in the Midwest, specifically in the Nebraska area, and the risk that it could leak and thus contaminate groundwater, which supplies a vast amount of drinking water and farming agricultural water to families and people in the Midwest, was substantial. The reason it was substantial, apparently, was that the tar sands and the oil extracted therefrom is more corrosive than oil we normally use and therefore it has a higher risk of corroding the pipes and then leaking uh, on its way from Canada down to the Gulf of Mexico which was the ultimate destination now part of the pipeline's already been completed it has a different name and that carries oils to uh, places in the Midwest um, I believe along the Mississippi um, the portion that was going to go all the way down uh, to the Gulf, I believe, was not completed. So the other thing I found interesting, though, and this is something that I've long been fascinated with, and then I actually did some, some further research into it. You know, what was, was it primarily the leaking? Was it, was, what was it? A lot of advocates for the pipeline say it was going to create thousands of jobs. Now, the truth is it would have created thousands of jobs while it was being constructed, right? Construction jobs, However, it wasn't going to necessarily be creating that many jobs long-term once it was completed. In fact, it would only be a much smaller number of jobs. Some have estimated only 50 long-term permanent jobs would exist from the pipeline uh, long-term. 
So that was interesting. Um, but many said it would actually increase our oil independence, right? We get a lot of oil from the Middle East, and we are dependent then on OPEC and other international pressures, which can cause the price of gas to spike, which can harm the economy, which can lead to price increases, et cetera, et cetera, which we've seen uh, time and time again in this country. And that us extracting from one of our closest allies in Canada would make us more energy independent. Now, people have tried to counteract that argument. But by and large, that's been disproven, right? Meaning we would be more energy independent if we built the pipeline and depended more on Canada. There's no denying it. It would help our prices. But more so what people are saying is that it was a symbolic thing, right? Extracting and continuing to extract oil from another dependable and long-term source in North America represented to environmental groups a a a problem because symbolically they want to move away from fossil fuels in general and the construction of a brand new pipeline from a newer energy source and source of fossil fuels represented a setback for them and upon doing more and more research i've kind of seen that that is more than likely the primary driver of the opposition and that's why they're rejoicing so much First, I think it's interesting, right? Like when you see with the Iranian nuclear deal with Obama and then Trump got rid of it. And now the pipeline, it was Obama had put a halt on it. But nonetheless, it had done well in the courts. It was going to proceed. Trump initiated it. And now Biden got rid of it. I I worry with the gateway tunnel now. Biden administration is saying they're going to push it forward. Murphy's on board, but Cuomo's giving us trouble. Well, what if Murphy loses the gubernatorial race and Chatterelli gets it? Is he going to pull the plug like Christie did? If Biden goes out of office, is another Republican going to pull the plug on the gateway project? Is Congress going to do the, number one, it's it's kind of disheartening. Like you got to have some, and there's a lot of this with the Supreme Court too, right? They're worried the Supreme Court's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. All these things. There's got to be some. I'm not saying all. I'm not saying if you get in office, you don't get to reverse a lot of executive orders and change things. You know, like be more of an environmental, environmentally friendly president. I applaud a ton of the things Biden's done with regard to the environment that Trump tried to strip away. 100%. Because I believe in open space. I believe in the environment. I'm an advocate for it. I believe in trying to combat climate change. But you got to have some deference, right? So they just stopped this pipeline. It's just, it's all out there now. Just pipes and pipes miles of pipe going nowhere empty pipes along the route these camps of guys that were there to work now they don't have a job like it's just there's no deference for the prior you know administration's decisions on some things and sometimes i just think it's just problematic can we ever be a reliable country to business to other countries to anybody if we constantly have to be dealing with the whims of the other party whenever they get in office it's just something to think about but more importantly I looked up kind of the – what is the end game, right? Because environmentalists see the end game and getting rid of the pipeline as electric vehicles, right? They say electric vehicles are the way that we're going to vastly reduce climate change. It's the wave of the future. And to even go beyond that, when I talked about the infrastructure deal earlier, a big, big piece, a big, big piece – of the infrastructure impasse is revolving around electric vehicles. Biden wants to vastly, hugely, hugely invest 
in disincentivizing gasoline-powered vehicles and incentivizing the manufacture of electric-powered vehicles going forward. And that is a huge thing because Republicans are pushing against it. Now, why they're totally pushing against it, I really don't know. I think it's just one of those identity ideological things. But upon further inspection of that whole issue, i.e. the question of will, will the proliferation of electric-powered vehicles, will that actually reduce climate change to where we need it to be, number one. And number two, will the net environmental impact of electric vehicles, will that positively impact the environment? That's a question. You know, we, we talk so much about wanting to do away with fossil fuel, wanting to invest in electric vehicles, but then, you know, we we don't even investigate the impact of what that might be, right? What the impact might be. And this is Logic and Larry, so I'm trying to be objective and just give you the facts, and so I researched them. And it's something we should be looking at. If we're going to be logical, if we're going to be objective, we need to look at, especially when you're, you know, I hope somebody in these closed-door meetings negotiating the infrastructure spending is bringing this up because this could be a place for compromise, okay? Upon further research... And this was, I found a, a, an excellent article uh, by Hiroko Tabachi, who's an environmental reporter for the New York Times. And this was in the New York Times. It was basically an article wondering how clean electric cars are. Like, is that what's going to get us to the promised land of lower emissions and a better climate and deal with this existential threat of climate change? And she posed that question and then she delved in and explored that question in her piece. And again, when I say no country for old men, I mean, I, I'm a Cadillac lover, and I love these old, beautiful cars we used to have. And, of course, they're all gasoline-powered. So, I don't know, am I going to have to do an electric conversion on some old car to ever have it again? Or are we just moving away from that classic thing altogether? And is it for the better? Probably. But is it a bit sad for those of us who still like that and aren't loving these little hatchback electros? I mean, probably. Probably. But, uh, anyway, that's beside the point. So, anyway, in this article... Um, they kind of explored the question of would electric cars overall be better for the environment? I'll cut to the chase before I give you some of the actual facts and figures. But essentially, the electric cars themselves, whether they will actually reduce our carbon footprint, is entirely dependent on whether our electrical grids are primarily powered by fossil fuels. In other words, it's all good that the car that runs primarily on a battery or completely on a battery has a less carbon emission, lesser carbon emission than a fuel-based car. But if that car has to be plugged in all night, every night, along with millions of other cars that all run on electricity, into a grid that primarily relies on coal or other fossil fuel burning to generate electricity, and therefore our electricity demands go way up because instead of using gasoline in the cars, we're, we're plugging them in, but we're still burning fossil fuels on the back end to charge them, then the net gain could actually be worse. It could actually be a net negative for the environment. That's the fact. Now, the cars themselves, there are some figures. So so she said in the article that a Chevy Bolt um, would generate, purely electric, would generate 189 grams of carbon dioxide per mile. 
whereas a brand new fuel-based Camry would be 385 grams per mile, and a Ford F-150 fuel-based would be 636 grams of carbon dioxide per mile. So the car itself... The electric vehicle itself would emit vastly, vastly, vastly less carbon into the atmosphere than a fuel-based vehicle. However, the and this was uh, it was Jeremy Jeremy Melichek, Jeremy Michalek, sorry, Jeremy Michalek from Carnegie Mellon University, who who studies these things, who was quoted in the article. He essentially said what I told you before, which is where I got it. He said it, it's grid-dependent, right? Electric vehicles emit less into the atmosphere on a per-mileage basis, vastly less. But unless the grid is revamped to rely on non-fossil fuels, then it's not going to have much of an impact. The other issue is the batteries, right? So currently, currently, 99% of lead-based batteries, 99% of our traditional lead-based batteries are recycled. 99, that's, that's very good. So we recycle 99% of our lead-based batteries. However, our lithium-ion batteries, which primarily are what these motor vehicles are going to run on, these lithium batteries are only recycled 5%. 5%. So once the batteries are done, the cars are older, we're going to have to store these batteries. On top of that, the elements we utilize to manufacture these electric batteries uh, rely on cobalt. And cobalt is, is gained through a process called smelting. 70% of the cobalt that we use in batteries, 70% comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And if you're, you're not familiar with, you know, uh, humanistic concerns and anti-imperialistic concerns and those issues, there is a vast concern about the uh, environmental impact and the resource exploitation of places like in Africa. So these batteries, if we see an, a rapid increase in the manufacture of electric car batteries, we are going to see massive more exploitation of natural resources in places like the Congo. Now, that creates air pollution, all kinds of other things, and there's all kinds of considerations and concerns about that. The fact is that over time there are technologies being um, Explored that would reduce our reliance on that natural cobalt and on the process by which we uh, cultivate cobalt and which would reduce the environmental and social impact of mining it. But those are still some years away. So it's just important, and I, I bring this up because I have a final solution in mind and a way we can get to an infrastructure deal and that we can... Um, kind of tackle this problem for the environment but it's just important you know when people are pounding the table you know saying that they especially in these newfound ideologies that you see politically when bernie sanders or aoc or somebody they, they pound on the table they're saying we're not just doing this this isn't just a a green new deal for the environment this is a green new deal that encompasses social justice racial justice gender justice all these justices it's all in one it's all one single-minded thing this one solution will conquer all of these problems at once because we can't turn our back on any cause the fact is that this 
pan-issue type approach is inherently contradictory a lot of times. You almost have to pick a few issues and form a coalition in a, a more defined subsidiary group because just by virtue of advocating for electric vehicles, which would reduce our carbon footprint per vehicle, you are then putting communities at risk in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, right? So you can't say, well, I'm always for the environment and I'm also always for justice for, you know, imperialized peoples, because sometimes those solutions lie in direct contrast and conflict with each other. And that's not to say that the whole world sucks, there's no solutions, we can't deal with the climate, you know, forget you, whatever. It's just to say that we should be more careful when we continuously try to claim the moral high ground on everything we said. Like I say before, like I said before, everything we say, I'm losing a little bit here. You know, there can be an altruistic aspect to for-profit things. It can be a for-profit thing to altruistic things. There's always a give and take. There's a negative side and a downside to every positive thing you try to do. That's not that you shouldn't try to do anything positive. It's just saying that you have to be mindful of that and don't be so quick to always claim the supreme moral high ground and everybody else the evil low ground every time you have these conversations. And if you stop pretending that you always have the moral high ground, maybe there'll be more room for compromise. So being mindful of all those issues with electric vehicles, I still think we should be investing in electric vehicles. I still think that's the future because of the reduced carbon footprint and because of the fact that the energy source is more renewable than these fuel sources are. That being said, such a huge part of Biden's um, infrastructure plan and such a huge part of the contention revolves around electric vehicles. But Biden has also spent a lot of time talking about refitting you know our our factories and refitting our generation you know plants to be more environmentally friendly and he's talked about investing in renewable energy which would be a large investment for companies to get into would create millions of jobs and those things as well perhaps a compromise and perhaps with the the environment and with people in mind we should not go so hard at just trying to convert all of our vehicles to electric before we've put significant energy and investment into transforming our electrical grids into more renewable energy. Because if the cars and the conversion to electric vehicles outpaces our conversion of renewable energy into the electrical grid, then the net environmental impact is actually going to be worse for climate change. What we should be doing is moderating and going slow or at least keeping pace on developing electric vehicles and converting our fuel-based vehicles to hybrids and then to electric, while simultaneously and at a much more rapid pace converting our uh, energy-generating needs and our plants and our electrical grids to more sustainable, renewable energy-based electrical grids. And while we're at it, we should be investing in, in cyber infrastructure to defend us against hacker attacks, and we can do all of that in big packages that you could brand. You could brand into cybersecurity, American independence, energy independence, environmentally friendly and job creators all in one package to convert the electrical grid 
into more sustainable, renewable sources and carve down the electric vehicle goals a little bit. Not do away with them, not say forget it, not keep making gas-guzzling cars. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if you framed it that way and if you give and take a little bit in that way and stop emphasizing the car so much just because it's an easily sellable brand for a political group, instead focused on the nuanced approach of converting the the power grid properly so that it will be able to absorb the needs of the electric vehicles without having a negative impact on the environment, then perhaps there might be a way forward with the infrastructure deal. Perhaps. But because XL was, was terminated just today, I thought that was a relevant conversation to have. And I thought it, it, it was, you know, something informative I was informed by, and hopefully all of you are, go out and tell other people that, because I don't think a lot of people know that. Make sure they understand that. Make sure they know that. I will post the New York Times article in the Logic and Larry discussion page uh, so that you could read it for yourself. But it is interesting. And I'm hoping that the infrastructure deal does go through in a sensible way, like along the lines of what I've put forth and along the lines of what I've described there. That does it for the show. I mean, I, I, and again, I know I started off on a whirlwind, a little, little pessimistic, a little agitated, whatever. And I know it's a lot of news these days. It's news heavy. Now, I've thought about going into a every other week format uh, for the summer just because news is slow and we're all enjoying ourselves and et cetera. Maybe that would boost the individual show listens. I don't know. But then some people, you know, rely on listening every week at their time. So I don't want to let them down. What I am going to do is I, uh, I'm going to get guests in and I'm going to get panels together. And I know I keep saying that and I haven't done it, but the fact is it's a lot of work. It's work. And so, you know, this is a, a side thing I do. And it's hard to when you're putting panels together, you're trying to get topics of discussion, you're trying to book people to come on. It's it's extra work. And it, in conjunction with the day job and in addition to the day job and in addition to the music projects in addition to all the reading i'm doing in addition to all the other social events i've got it's uh, and the writing endeavors it's just a lot so you know i apologize i've been a little slow with that but i do appreciate you all sticking with me this show will get a little spark when i get the panels and when i get guests back on and when the news picks up and etc etc so i apologize that it's mostly news-based and then me trying to find the place in the news to try to discuss philosophy and knowledge and try to just plead for more pragmatism in society. But, uh, hey, that's what the show is right now. Anybody who still listens, I appreciate it. Keep sharing the show. Keep getting the word out there. I'm going to be here for you. So if you could be there for me and listen and get the word out, I appreciate and respect it. And I will continue to make improvements on the show. I have plenty of ideas. I will put them in motion. If there's one thing you can count on with me, it's my word i'm reliable i'm here every week with you and every time i've promised you something on the show i've come through with it and every time i've promised something personally to you if you know me like that i've come through with it so i will make improvements to the show the show will continue to gain steam despite our little lull right now i appreciate and respect all of you for listening please spread the word not only about the show but about the substantive issues and information we talk about on the show I will see you all next week. Next week will be live. I'll see you live next week. I look forward to being live with you next week. Until then, enjoy your weekend. Continue to enjoy your summer. And I will speak to you next week. Good night.